Hi, my name is Molly Schulte Tucker, and I have the privilege of pastoring the good people of Ridgewood Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. On Sunday, August 7th, we celebrated the beginning of a new school year with our blessing of the backpacks. And we distributed bag tags with a reminder that God's got your back to our children, youth, and school faculty, staff, and administrators. If you would like one of these bag tags for your child or grandchild or friend or neighbor, please contact molly at ridgewoodlouisville.org and we'd be happy to send one. had the chance to meet you yet. My name is Molly Schulte Tucker, and I am privileged to be the pastor here at Ridgewood. If you're watching us online, um, or if you are listening later in the week to our podcast, all the same welcome to you. Um, I am so glad that you are here today, especially on a day where the scripture Pat read earlier. How funny. Jesus gives us a lot of stories, a lot of parables, and a lot of times uses this servant-master relationship to talk about the kingdom of God and and God and, and, and how God acts. But truly, this story is an odd one out. In fact, last night, as Rob and I, if you don't know, my husband is also a pastor about 45 minutes away from here. Um, Oh, children, go on to Children's Church if you have not. Sorry, Heather. (laughs) And last night I was telling Rob, uh, yes, I'm, you know, I'm preaching on the story about the master and the servant. He said, oh, where the master comes and gets mad at the servants for not keeping watch. No, it's not that one, actually. This is kind of an oddball story in the book of Luke. We're told that it actually comes from a time where Jesus was traveling, and he's telling these stories. And even what we read today, we think actually might have originally been part of the story before in the gospel of Luke. And there's a lot of little trinkets in here we could focus in on. But I want to read it for you again. What Pat read earlier, it's not too long. I'm going to read it for you again. And I wonder if the same thing may stick out to you that stuck out to me when talking about servants and masters. So hear this. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moths destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and he will have them sit down to eat 
and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. So you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. I know we don't live in a time, especially in this country, where we have masters and servants. But at the time of Jesus, this was probably an understood image. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't expect a master to come home after a banquet to a servant opening the door saying, sit down and eat and let me serve you. When has someone shown you unexpected generosity? Maybe it's recent, maybe it's long in your past, but when has someone shown you unexpected generosity? One personal image that comes to mind. A long time and many pounds ago, I was a student of ballet. I actually did ballet from the time I was about three years old until I graduated high school when I was 18. I think all of my grace has gone out the window since then, but I tried for 15, 16 years to master the art of ballet. And when you become six and seven years old, you also can tap and you also add on jazz or uh, lyrical. Uh, you can even add on hip-hop if you're really good at it. I didn't do that. Um, but at the end of the year, you probably know this, at the end of the dance year, what happens? The dance recital. And when you're young, you've got one shot. You have one dance recital. But as my parents who bled through many, many dance recitals will tell you, the older you get, the less dancers there are and the more recitals you have to perform in. So by my senior year, my junior year, sophomore year, I was in four recitals a weekend. And I think my parents were at every single one, again, sweated through the hot auditoriums of glitter and eyeshadow. And um, when I was in about third grade, I was in a dance class that was full of friends. We had quite the time all year. And when the time for the recital came, we learned our dance, or so we thought. But it was the first year that our teacher would not be down in front of the stage reminding us what to do. If you ever did dance or you've seen a dance recital, you know the teachers sit in the middle and their hands become the feet. First position, tendu. The first year that we didn't have this guide. And wouldn't you believe it, because my class loved socializing more than we liked memorizing our recital dance, in the middle of our jazz dance, we all forgot what to do next. 
The music continued to, to play. The lights continued to blare. We stood there looking around at each other like deer in headlights because essentially that's what we were. Until we kind of heard a familiar part of the music. Someone started doing something. I think we got to a final pose. It's all a blur. We got off stage and just stared at each other. Miss Connie is going to kill us. (laughs) We continued through the rest of the dance recital. And that year, our final dance was all of the junior prep, junior company, senior company, all of these dancers all together. And as we came off the stage in this big group of dancers, Miss Connie was there. And she said, junior prep, I need to see you. Come here, come here. And we prepared for the onslaught. (laughs) She didn't say anything until we were all gathered in a circle. All ready for the gauntlet. And she looked at us and said, I am so proud of you. And I think we thought she was joking. (laughs) She said it again, I am so proud of you. You could have run off the stage. You could have started crying in the middle, but you stayed there. You figured it out. You kept going. And I am so proud of you. I can't tell you where Miss Connie is now. I have no idea. I'm assuming she has a last name as well, but I don't know. But I will never forget that moment. And when I think about someone with a generous spirit, that is instantly what comes to mind. A lot of times we think about generosity purely from a financial standpoint. But the truth is, as Christians, we are taught about a God who is extravagantly, dangerously generous. So when did someone show you unexpected generosity? Or, Alice, if you can hit that first slide in my sermon... There you go. Here we go. Generosity in any form is a way of living that honors God through joy and the grace shown to others. It is reflected in the way we follow the pattern of life that Christ demonstrated in his ministry. A way of living. So here's what I will assert to you today. If nothing else God is generous. If nothing else, God is generous. Now we talk about how God is love and God is just. But if nothing else, God is generous with that love and God is generous with that justice. So if nothing else, I hope that we can learn that God is generous. 
You'll remember in that very first book, that very first verse from Luke, you'll remember it says, it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Or the verse I guarantee maybe was among the first that you ever memorized in children's church. For God so loved the world that God gave. That is God's response to love, to loving someone, is that God gives. If nothing else, God is generous. So just think on this question for a moment. Are you generous? You don't have to answer out loud. Are you generous? Now remember, don't just think financially, although that is an important part of our life as Christians is ordering our finances. But are you a generous person? If you're an Enneagram 2, your answer is probably yes right here. And I I do want some response from this. What are ways that we can be generous? I'll take the first one out of the batch. Financially, we can be generous. What are some other ways that we can be generous? Time, says our trusty chair, of course. What are some other ways we can be generous? Food. Yes. In the moment, we give honey. In the moment, you feel the generosity. Good. Any other ways? Other ways we can be generous? A listening ear. Our presence. Other ways we can be generous? Say that again, Charlotte. A prayer. I heard compassionate, be compassionate. Sharing of talents. Good. Say that again. With our love. We can be generous with our love. A lot of ways to show generosity. Why would someone call you generous? Of all the ways we just listed, you don't have to answer out loud. Why would someone call you generous? Or should we take a step back? Would someone describe you as generous? So I wonder if we're talking about generosity, a generous God, and how we can emulate that. How do we become more generous? And I, I wonder if you've ever thought about generosity. Is it, is it like a muscle? Like, is it like a muscle we have to build to become more generous? We start little and we kind of can grow it. Um, is it more like, I hate to say like a disease, but is it something you can catch uh, that, that's contagious among us? Is that what generosity looks like? Or is it a gift? Is it something that naturally occurs within us that God gives to us? How does generosity form? Well, scripture teaches us about a God who was generous from the moment of creation, a God who hears and responds and loves and sustains. That's kind of the the acts of God in the world, if we could just simplify it down to that. A God who hears, responds, loves, and sustains. 
So I would say, if we are Christ followers, if we are supposed to emulate the generosity and the generous love of God in the world, Tom Berlin, who is a Methodist pastor, says that generosity begets generosity. Have you heard that begets, begets, begets? You know what I'm talking about if you've read that, uh, all those generations right before Jesus is born. Generosity begets generosity. So there's that old song, some of y'all may know, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Everyone, we can start singing it now, probably in four-part harmony. But generosity begets generosity. You matter because if you decide to be generous, someone might catch it from you. Generosity begets generosity. In fact, and I'm I hope this is not embarrassing. Um, I'm sorry if it is, but Miss Betty, I am going to recognize you for a second because last week we put out a call for flood buckets, supplies to put together flood buckets for Eastern Kentucky. And we made a goal in this congregation to put together three flood buckets. They cost a lot because you have to have very specific things in a bucket. They all have to fit in there. Well, Miss Betty and some friends put together three flood buckets apart from what we were asking. So thank you for your generosity. And yes, and here's the next thing. We asked for three buckets to be completed. So now we have six. Everything is accounted for, including the ones that Miss Betty gave us. We have two more weeks at least, maybe even three more weeks. If you would like to get together with some folks, your neighborhood, maybe some family members, or you would like to just individually put together a flood bucket, there are lists of everything that needs to go in them on the back table. I am stunned by this congregation's generosity over and over again. But if you would like to make your own flood bucket, go for it. Generosity begets generosity. And thank you, Betty, and your friends. But here's what I also know is that generosity never happens by accident. There is intention in wanting to be generous. But I'll also say, speaking of generosity, there's typically two mindsets that churches and individuals will find themselves in. Typically, we live in a feast or famine mindset, especially in a church. You might have an abundance mindset. Peggy, I saw you giggling a little bit. You know what I'm talking about. You might have an abundance mindset. You might have a scarcity mindset. And that could depend on what you have lived through or the situation you are in right this very moment. Individuals can live in that mindset in your household Groups of people can live in that mindset in organizations like churches. But the main difference between abundance and scarcity is in a feeling of abundance. Even if the resources are not present, you still have the desire to dream. 
You still have the desire to set goals and maybe even take risks and believe in the generosity of God that will follow the dreams. Or if you might be in a scarcity mindset, you may be more concerned with why it can't happen. In other words, you might fear dreaming. I know that our minds gravitate towards financial generosity when we talk about this, but it's also a theological generosity that we offer to others. Sometimes we have the fear of dreaming about what if God is bigger than I think. I have to let you know that one of my most precious mentors is in the room today. Reverend Dr. Andrea Dillinger-Jones, who I got to work under in North Carolina. Uh, Her and her beautiful family, I can't believe Annalise is like 20 now or something, um, are are traveling and stopped through. Brent uh, is a PhD in history. And I'm about to talk about the Baptist faith and message and I realize how inept I am right now. So this is extremely intimidating. Um, but anything I am, you can blame on, on Andrea. Almost anything I am, you can blame on Andrea and my parents who are like right there, right next to each other. So you might get some comments after the, after the service. But I say all this because sometimes we're fearful to dream about what a generous God really could look like and what that means for us in practicalities. This is how I know that. There is a document, I think actually this was my dad's that he gave to me. There's a document that we refer to um, in really nerdy Baptist circles called the Baptist Faith and Message. You may have heard of this document. There are technically three versions with some amendments. There's a 1925 version, a 1963 version, and then a 2000 version. This is the 1963 version, which we mostly adhere to. This does not tell you specifically what to believe, um, but it tells us how we enact theology in the world. And it gives us some language, because if we don't have language to enact theology, sometimes we can get tripped up in little things. So this is the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message. You probably heard me. There's a 2000 Baptist faith and message. Vicki just snarled. That was great. That was great, Vicki. The difference between the 1963 and the 2000 Baptist faith and message, there were many differences. But one difference was in the 2000 version, specific guidelines were put in about how we should believe in God around women, women's rights, around homosexuality, and more. 
It narrowed the gate for how churches should practice and talk about and enact theology. And in conversation with Chris Sanders right beforehand, I said, Chris, if I said that it took what was a statement and a message into doctrine, meaning this is what you have to believe, and Chris agreed that was a, a, fair, <laughs> a fair assessment of it. Because I think as Christians and as churches, especially when we're told that the church is shrinking throughout the world, we try to control it more. We try to narrow that path. We lose our generosity. But here's what I know, and, and what I'll say to, to, um, to wrap up, is the first thing that we see that is in this passage and throughout Scripture is do not be afraid because fear keeps us from being generous. What are you scared of? If you had a more generous theology, if you were more generous with your time, what do you fear? Second, this is my, one of my favorite uh, phrases, be dressed for action. I want Indiana Jones to swing in from the balcony, be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Don't have the gasoline over here. Have it ready to go. Be prepared and dream about what could be, but be ready for action. One of my good friends uh, in CBF, his name is, is Ricky, he talks about serving a tiny little church in western, I think it was South Carolina, tiny little church, tiny little budget, and one day a plumber in his congregation passed away. He got a call a few months later from this plumber's attorney that said, you were just the recipient of $200,000 that he left as a legacy gift. Be ready for those things. You never know when they're going to come. If nothing else, God is generous. For God so loved the world, God's response was that God gave and gave, and gave, and continues to give. So when was the time when someone showed you unexpected generosity? And when was the time you could show unexpected generosity? One of the things that we do where we get to talk about God's generosity is that we get to practice communion or the Lord's Supper together. This is how we know that God is a generous God because Christ sat around the table with 12 other guys and he gave them all his body and his blood even the people that would betray him, even the people that would desert him, even the people that would deny him. And Christ still sat there and washed their feet and gave them symbols of his blood and his body. If nothing else, 
God is generous. Let's pray together. God, in this meal that we take to remember you, we ask that you would enliven in us a spirit of generosity. Remind us that we are yours. Remind us of our belovedness. Remind us that no one is left out because you are a generous God who hears and responds and loves and sustains us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. On the night when Christ gave himself up for us, he was sitting around with his disciples. And during the dinner, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, and remember me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks to God and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, drink, and remember me. Here at Ridgewood, we practice an open table, so it does not matter if you are a member here, a member of a church down the street, or not a member of a church at all. As long as you are seeking to be a disciple of Jesus, you are welcome at this table. This morning, you have two options for communion. You may take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup that's called intinction and then eat it immediately. Or we also have individual packages if you'd like to take it back to your seat. That is a gluten-free cracker and a grape to represent uh, the wine. I'm going to ask if Janelle will come and help me. If you will just be careful to allow space between you and the person in front of you just to create some distancing.